It's time for Legally Speaking. Joining us, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael Mulligan. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, always good to be here. Lots of interesting things on the agenda today. I see contempt. I see words like criminal or civil. I see provincial AG. I see the Supreme Court. Set this up for us. Yeah, the first case on the agenda is a extremely important one in terms of uh, that concept of uh, criminal versus civil contempt, uh, both in terms of how those are to be prosecuted in the uh, province uh, and I, I suppose uh, in the uh, particular uh, circumstances of the uh, ongoing breaches of the uh, court order with respect to uh, Ferry Creek. Now, this decision that came out is a very important one people should be aware of. Here's how it begins. Hmm. The judge says, we have been in the grips of a global pandemic that has dominated news coverage since March 2020. Although many may not presently recall what was dominating the news in British Columbia in early February 2020, it was a crisis of a different sort, one directed at the rule of law. And what the judge is speaking about uh, there, of course, is that back in February of 2020, uh, there were uh, protests with respect to the uh, gas link pipeline and the Wet'suwet'en uh, nation, uh, which involved what was described as a choke point strategy, where there were uh, blockades erected of railways, road uh, lines, access points, and so forth. Mm. Um, and with respect to some of those, uh, injunctions were granted uh, to uh, stop uh, those blockades. Uh, and the one being dealt with now was the blockade which occurred at the Vancouver Port Authority. It blocked access to the Port Authority uh, as well as a major intersection in Vancouver. Yes. And there was an injunction granted for the people there to stop doing that. Uh, the people didn't stop doing that, uh, that were involved in the protest, and several were arrested. Now, what happened um, is that the matter was brought back to court. Uh, the judge uh, hearing the matter uh, heard some preliminary evidence about what had occurred in terms of this uh, blockade, continued blockade of the uh, port, uh, and it was brought to court originally by the Vancouver Port Authority. Although, as the judge pointed out, they weren't even a party to the original dispute. They were just the unfortunate victim of the blockade, right? They had That's, nothing to do with the pipeline. Yeah, it seems very familiar. They just got blocked. Yes. Uh, and so to court they came, got an injunction. Protesters ignored the injunction, continued the blockade, and several of them were arrested. Port Authority comes back to court and says, hey, <laughs> this is what's happened, wanting to pursue um, a uh, uh, some action uh, against, for contempt against the people that were uh, intentionally failing to comply with the court order. The judge hearing it concluded, uh, I think probably uh, uh, correctly, uh, that this matter should be dealt with by way of criminal contempt rather than civil contempt. And the court here is pointing out what the um, core difference is between those concepts. First of all, the idea of civil contempt uh, is to ensure that the uh, party that's not complying with an order start complying with the order. Rather than uh, punishing the conduct, it's designed to uh, ensure that uh, there is uh, compliance with a court order. However, uh, that's distinguishable from criminal contempt. Uh, where the uh, conduct engaged in uh, is calculated to bring the administration of justice into disrepute uh -huh. by doing things like intentionally publicly breaching a court order in order to get attention for an issue, yes. for example. Yes. That's a very different thing Absolutely. from somebody who 
is told, you know, pay this money and they don't pay it, and you have a civil dispute between two individuals, that might be a matter of civil uh, contempt. But when you're doing it intentionally and publicly, um, that has a really serious, deleterious effect on the rule of law. I agree. Right? And so here, the court concluded, look, this should be dealt with by way of criminal contempt. And the court, in the languages, invited the British Columbia Attorney General to take carriage of the prosecution by calling further evidence about what transpired so that the judge could determine whether these people were in criminal contempt, and if so, what penalty would be appropriate. Now, here's where things started to go off the rails. The BC Attorney General, having been invited to do that by the court, uh, reviewed the matter, and they reviewed it in the way that Crown Counsel might review a report they receive from uh, the police. So in British Columbia, for example, if the police arrest somebody and they think there should be a criminal charge, the police would submit a report to Crown Counsel, and Crown Counsel would review that to determine, first of all, is there a substantial likelihood of conviction? Can we prove it? And second of all, is it in the public interest to proceed? And if it meets both those tests, then Crown would proceed with a criminal charge in the ordinary course of things. And so the British Columbia Attorney General took the position that that kind of a review uh, could or should be conducted in determining whether to proceed with the criminal contempt uh, prosecution, where the court has invited uh, the Attorney General to do so. Hmm. Um, And this is the really important point of this decision. The uh, court has now held that the attorney general does not uh, have the authority to do that. Uh, They do not have the authority to determine whether it would be in the public interest to proceed with the criminal uh, prosecution for contempt. Because in this case, the provincial attorney general concluded, yes, there is a substantial likelihood of convicting these people for criminal contempt of the court order, but then concluded for its own reasons, possibly with respect to delay caused by the pandemic or maybe efforts to uh, work on uh, reconciliation or uh, negotiations, a whole variety of things that might be broadly considered by the Attorney General when the Attorney General is deciding, is it in the broad public interest to prosecute these people? The Attorney General declined to proceed with the prosecution. Um, And what the court has found in this case is that there is no re- there is no authority to do that. That was not an appropriate response. Interesting. And we saw that, for example, recently when the Attorney General uh, came before the BC Supreme Court and asked the Chief Justice for an injunction with respect to non-compliance uh, with respect to public health orders at churches. Indeed, and, and you and pandemic. I discussed the Port Authority matter at that time, did we not? I'm getting serious deja vu. Yes. Okay. That's right. Yeah. And so in that case, the Chief Justice said, province, you're not getting your injunction. And one of the reasons you're not getting it is that you failed to properly enforce the injunction you got with respect to the Port Authority. Yes. And so this is the next chapter in that saga. And the next chapter here is the court directing the Attorney General, you don't have that authority. Once the court has made the determination that the matter ought to proceed by way of a criminal contempt prosecution, when we are inviting you to then take over calling evidence, that does not give you the authority to consider other things that you might think are in the public interest, be that 
um, you know, desires for reconciliation or ongoing negotiations or various other things. You don't have that authority. And the court went back and looked at the whole history of that sort of, quote, invitation to the attorney general to begin calling evidence. And they looked at cases including, and this is part of the history of injunctions in British Columbia, uh, cases involving the Every Woman's uh, uh, Health Center, Mm -hmm. where people decided to blockade that that were opposed to abortion. I see. And hundreds of people were blockading it to stop it from occurring because they, despite an injunction, had their own strongly held beliefs that women should not have access to abortion. Mm -hmm. And so organized demonstrations to block women from getting into the clinic. Uh, and the history of how it is that courts began inviting the attorney general to conduct the prosecution. And the court has made the point that uh, it's part of the inherent jurisdiction of the superior court to enforce its own orders. And the BC Prosecution Service does not have authority to make its own assessment as to whether the matter's in the public interest to proceed. The, the fact that they were treating it like a report from the police Uh, was inappropriate, and they're not to do that. Uh, And so the court has laid out uh, how that may proceed in the future. And so what they've said is, look, the attorney general should be invited to take up the cause of prosecuting the matter in terms of presenting evidence to the court so there can be a decision made. Once the court has determined that the matter should proceed by way of a criminal contempt proceeding, and then, importantly, The court has said that if the attorney general fails to accept that, quote, invitation uh, to fulfill that role, uh, the court has suggested that the court may adopt a a different practice, which might involve the court appointing special counsel to present the evidence. And so, really, this is the next chapter of this ongoing um, tension between who makes the decision about uh, how a criminal contempt proceeding should occur. And the court has very clearly here uh, directed the Attorney General that that's not uh, something within your jurisdiction. The court will decide whether it's to proceed by way of criminal contempt because of the court's duty to uphold the rule of law. And they made the point that if you don't have enforcement uh, of orders in that way, you're going to wind up with things like they refer to the strongest mob will rule over the week. And yes, anarchy will absolutely. Prevail. Yes, that's what right? happens without the courts. That's what we were before rule of law and civil society was developed. And that's exactly the point. And so even though people have strongly held beliefs, like, for example, in the Every Woman's Health Clinic, many people would have strongly held beliefs that women shouldn't have access to abortion. It is not appropriate uh, in a, a democratic society where we have the rule of law when that is permitted and there's an injunction telling you to stop blocking women that are trying to get into the health authority to continue doing it simply because you really think that that shouldn't happen yeah. or because you want attention for your side of it. Yeah. it. The system only works. We only have the rule of law when people are going to accept those decisions. You simply can't have uh, the rule by mob. Uh, and who's able to whip up some people to block the uh, road, block the port authority, or block the abortion clinic, uh, because you really think you know best, despite the fact that there is a law uh, providing for something, and there's been a court hearing and an order that something occur. We just cannot function as a society if people just insist that, well, if I don't like the outcome of that, I'm just going to blockade the the fill-in-the-blank. Yeah. Uh, and so the court has made clear it's going to take charge of these things and it will make sure uh, that its orders are uh, uh, enforced uh, and 
that's not something which is a discretionary matter for the Attorney General or anyone else. And so it is a very important decision, um, and it's likely to have some impact on uh, what's going on currently uh, with the uh, continued intentional breaching of the court order with respect to uh, the blockade at Ferry Creek. Now, none of that is to say that that's not an important issue. And the court points out, right, we, there's you know, fundamental protection for people's right to speak about things and protest things. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, while you're quite free to protest abortion or logging or uh, pipelines or whatever it is you want to protest, if your method of doing that is to uh, intentionally publicly breach court orders in order to get attention to your matter, you're going to find that the result of that is going to be a Uh, criminal prosecution for contempt. And the court has made clear that it will uh, pursue that. It's got inherent jurisdiction to do that. uh, And it's not subject to uh, political considerations or what might be uh, popular. Uh, And so it is a very important decision and we're not, uh, I don't think, uh, done with this one yet. It is a really important development of how that law of contempt has developed in British Columbia and how these prosecutions will occur in the future. Good. It's something that I think will shore up uh, public confidence in the administration of justice, knowing that there is no fear of political pressures uh, causing an attorney general to decline to prosecute the matter. Leaving it up to the courts leaves it up to the courts. So I like that. That's exactly what we've got, right? And and it's an interesting example of how the common law develops over time uh, in response to perhaps some sort of unforeseen uh, uh, activity. And criminal contempt is an interesting thing. It's the one criminal offense that is a common law offense, yeah. uh, which is within the inherent jurisdiction of the uh, court. And this is an example of how that can develop to deal with uh, modern circumstances. All right, let's take our first break. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally Speaking will continue right after this. Back on the air with Legally Speaking, Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers as we continue the conversation. Michael, what's next on the agenda? Well, next on the agenda is a case involving a 72-year-old uh, widow uh, from Burnaby, uh, who uh, had a, uh, wanted to sell her home a number of years after retiring. Uh, and when she wanted to sell her home, she consulted a real estate agent who told her that in order to make her home marketable, um, she should have a buried oil tank uh, removed from the property. And so after thinking about that for a number of months, uh, indeed, uh, uh, that's what she did. She wound up hiring a company called Speedy Oil Tank <laughs> Removal, or Speedy. Yes. Um, yeah, sorry, Speedy Solution Oil Tank Removal. So, uh, Widow hires Oil Tank Removal Company. Oil Tank gets removed. She pays $1,750 for the work digging up, removing the oil tank, and putting grass seed back down. That's all fine. Uh, they advise her at the time that uh, oil has leaked out of the tank. That's not good. Uh, and about a year later, before she sells her house, she decides she better get the oil cleaned up. And so, she calls Speedy back. And she signs a contract uh, to remove the dirty dirt with the oil in it. And the contract uh, specifies an amount per ton of dirt to be removed. Well, sadly, for the plaintiff, uh, the amount of dirt being removed turned out to be very extensive. (laughs) And she noticed that when they had to bring in a larger digger, and it turned out that the uh, uh, oil-soaked soil had uh, leaked onto their neighbor's property. Um, and uh, ultimately, uh, 324 tons of dirty dirt <laughs> wound up being removed from her property and her neighbor's property. Wow. And so she was presented with a bill for $166,702. Uh, 
Um, and so this led to then uh, litigation with the speedy oil tank removal people, and it became more complicated because she had then sold her house uh, uh, to another purchaser uh, who uh, didn't keep any hold back. Uh, and so a lien wound up on the property for the unpaid $166,000 bill. And the matter eventually went to the BC, went to the BC Supreme Court, and the uh, trial judge uh, found that there could be some relief for the widow uh, under the BC Consumer Protection Legislation, finding the contract to have been, quote, unconscionable. Um, and he reduced the bill to $80,000, uh, bearing in mind that the speedy removal company had in fact paid out of pocket $77,600, I guess, for the trucking and disposal and so on, leaving aside their overhead and other costs. Uh, but speedy uh, appealed that, uh, and the uh, Court of Appeal decision uh, was just released, and on a two-to-one decision, uh, it went against the widow. Um, and while uh, all three judges agreed that this, in fact, was a consumer contract and the BC Consumer Protection Act did apply, uh, the majority carefully went through the various circumstances in which a contract can be found to be uh, unconscionable. Things like, was there undue pressure put on the person? Uh, or, uh, you know, was the total price grossly excessive? Mm-hmm. Or was there no reasonable prospect the person could pay? Uh, and going, going through each of those one by one, ultimately the majority concluded, uh, terribly sorry, but none of these apply. This was extremely expensive, uh, but the things complained about, like, uh, you know, not telling her on a day-to-day basis how much dirty dirt had been dug out, um, didn't make it an unconscionable agreement, uh, nor did a suggestion that they should have drilled these sort of core samples to figure out how much dirty dirt there was before they started digging for the dirt. Um, that uh, really wasn't a complaint either, because uh, ordinarily that would cost uh, much more than would be worth uh, doing, and you would still have to dig the dirty dirt out. Yeah. Um, and so I, I guess the takeaway here, first of all, is be careful before you buy a house that's got a, a buried oil tank. Yeah. Um, you could wind up with a very large bill for it. Um, and, uh, you know, if you've got one of these things, uh, to some extent, you're sort of stuck with it, uh, and stuck with the costs, because if you don't clean it up before you sell the place, the person who purchases it may wind up coming back to collect that from you later. And so, uh, really, I guess the message here is that the, uh, cost of uh, remediation, particularly when there's been a large leak can be really high, um, I should note, at least in the past, I think one of the solutions with the dirty dirt was to truck it from B.C. to Alberta, where the regulations for dirty dirt are lax, more lax than they are in B.C., so it became clean dirt. I guess if you truck it up to northern Alberta and dump it in the oil sands, you just need a clean patch. Uh, so, you know, uh, I guess maybe we should uh, think carefully about whether it's a great use of uh, money to require people to clean up dirty dirt under their house. Uh, but indeed, that's what's required. Uh, and if that's required of you, uh, be careful because you may be in for a very large bill. The way that the that the uh, market uh, creates solutions to minimize costs due to regulatory leakage, like driving dirt across a provincial border where suddenly it is magically viewed as being less dirty than it was before, is always fascinating to see. 
isn't that great? You know, I, I think it might just create a clean area, right? Or maybe just feed it into an oil extractor <laughs> and they can pump it back to BC through that pipeline as bitumen or something. So I guess it's all a matter of where the dirty dirt is. Oh, yeah. I keep forgetting about that pipeline. It occupied so much of my thought processes once upon a time before COVID. We were all so young, weren't we? Uh, Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Pleasure as always. I've got 90 seconds left. Is there anything else you want to touch on? Yeah, I, I guess there's one more thing to touch on in that 90 seconds, and that would be a Supreme Court of Canada case dealing with when a person can have retroactive child support uh, decreased. And it was a case where a father didn't pay virtually anything for many years and then came asking that his $170,000 unpaid child support bill be reduced. And the Supreme Court of Canada, the real takeaway here is that you're not going to get that unless you have been giving notice to the other person about what your income is. They really made a clear point that people who are paying child support that want to have a future reduction have an obligation to be clear with the other party about changes in their financial circumstances. If you don't tell the other person and come along years later asking for a change, you may not get it. Uh, And the other point the court makes is an important one is that you need to. You don't need to, but if you show good faith in the sense of paying what somebody is able to pay, even if it's less than what originally was ordered, that may also accrue to your benefit if you're coming along later and asking for a reduction. So the takeaway there for people who are uh, have had a change of financial circumstances because they lost their job or got a lower paying job and you have a child support obligation include you should tell the other person promptly and you should continue to pay what you can pay. And if you do those things, you may have a a better prospect of getting a change uh, retroactively if a large bill racks up. Michael Mulligan, pleasure as always. Thank you for your time. Until next week. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Have a great day.